iTunes and Podbean, making it even easier to find us. Joining Jeff Frederick, the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, is Dr. Brian Robinson, the UNCP Vice Chancellor for Advancement. With them is Dr. Tamara Savage, Assistant Professor of Social Work. The topic for today is poverty. Get ready for 30 break minutes. By many metrics, the U.S. economy is performing well. Various unemployment rates are at historically low levels. Interest rates remain quite low, making it possible for first-time homeowners to borrow money to get started on a picket fence, shade trees, and a flower garden. In fact, respondents to surveys still often correlate their vision of the American dream with homeownership. The stock market is robust, and even nominal wage growth is on the rise, though it is barely outpacing inflation. Given how stark the Great Recession was and how methodical the recovery has been, what's not to like? Looking deeper, the tentacles of poverty remain firmly entrenched in many aspects of American life. Many particularly acute issues are proliferating in rural communities, including right here in southeastern North Carolina. If we start with metrics like the Current Population Survey Annual Social and Economic Supplement, which is part of the U.S. Census, it appears as many as 40 million Americans, or 12 to 13 percent of Americans in general, are living below the poverty line. As the UC Davis Center for Poverty Research reminds us, the official poverty measure triples the inflation-adjusted cost of minimum food diet and creates thresholds based on family size, composition, and the age of the householder. And anyone living in a household with an income below their relative poverty threshold is considered to be in poverty. Deep poverty is a separate gradation, with the U.S. Census Bureau using the term to signify someone living in a household with a total cash income below 50% of the poverty threshold. American dream notions of social mobility notwithstanding, in every century, rural folk have dealt with a myriad of difficulties which make it hard to climb out of poverty. Across the South, late 19th century Southerners, white, black, and American Indian, were often poor sharecroppers who struggled to ever own their own land. Recently, here in North Carolina, the end of the tobacco subsidy and post-NAFTA textile mill relocation has imprinted a new economic normal. Throw in a couple of devastating hurricanes over the last three years, and you have a recipe for serious problems for people who may even fall short of the living from paycheck to paycheck standard. Many rural Americans struggle with access to medical care and despite relatively cheap land prices, find themselves unable to afford adequate housing or even stay afloat with a residence that does not meet basic needs. In the digital age, the broadband divide makes it hard for the poor to use the internet to look for jobs or for their children to complete homework assignments if the work has to be downloaded and then submitted digitally. Every day, people choose between medical care and food. Seniors without much margin for error make decisions and choices about the best way to use limited funds to solve multiple problems. If your glass of water is half empty, the disparity of income and the concentration of wealth is eerily similar to the 1920s, a period of unbridled economic expansion and deregulation, which eventually broke apart in the desperation of the Great Depression. If your glass of water is half full, you take comfort in the fact that global poverty world hunger, and child labor are all trending in a positive direction. Worldwide child mortality is thankfully down. 
and life expectancy is increasing. Our topic for today is poverty, with a special emphasis on those living in rural areas. And joining me are Tamara Savage and Dr. Brian Robinson, both PhDs, both of whom have studied these problems from the inside out, and both will shed some light for our listeners today. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. So at the basic level, how do you both, as experts, study poverty? How does that work? Well, I'm a social worker, and so I'm interested in uh, people that are in poverty and how they're living day to day, especially at the intersection of race and gender um, and class. Uh, specifically, I'm interested in the most impoverished, homelessness, people who are experiencing homelessness. So that's, that's one area. I'm also interested in the neurobiology of poverty. How does that affect children and their brain development? Right? So we know that we make neural pathways when we're presented with a, an event of some sort. And we're seeing now that, that really um, impoverished environments impoverished schools, impoverished neighborhoods, um, that they actually have a detrimental effect on children's behavior and the neural pathways that they're making. So those are two ways that, that, that I've been studying poverty. Well, we also know that poverty is, is, has a relative character. So some people will mm -hmm. say, well, compared to Sub-Saharan Africa or mm -hmm. compared to other parts of the world, do we have poverty? The answer is clearly yes, we do. It's relative. Right. Your ability to function in your society, in your community, and the means and the resources that you have determine you know, our, our socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. uh, in my studies, and I was really, I, I started out in life in a trailer park in a very small town in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I had plenty of meals uh, mm -hmm. given by the, by the federal government. My mother and I would make crackers and cheese and that was dinner. Mm -hmm. And so for some of us, this is very visceral mm -hmm. and it's based on our experiences. As an academician, what I would say is I believe rural poverty to be the, the single greatest issue facing our country since Lyndon Bain Johnson's de declared war on poverty in the 60s. Mm -hmm. We've seen some positive trend lines, but we still know that poverty, particularly rural poverty, is persistent. Mm -hmm. It's deep and it's generational. So from the standpoint of studying it, we have to understand that the, the kids in the Mississippi Delta are facing slightly different issues maybe than kids in southeastern North Carolina. But the effect is the same. We know the first 18 months is very deterministic mm -hmm. for brain development. We know right. that with certainty. We know about literacy and prosody and what is taught in the home and in the school and how in the earlier the better and how it affects literacy mm -hmm. and prosody. Exactly. So lots of great stuff here. So mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a racial and gender component here. There's also a comparative um, component of time and place and context. And all of these fit together. So from both of your walks of life, you have to study economics and history and medicine and educational development and psychology. And you have to study a, a ton of different things in order to get a grasp on a racial or gender ramification within a specific time or context or place. Yeah, exactly. I mean, being a social worker, we study a lot of history, and during the progressive eras, when we really started this idea of public policy about, you know, to, to address poverty. And so it goes back sometimes, our, our policy, which all of our research hopefully leads to that, this idea of how do we view poverty in the beginning, right? What is, how do we view it as, as human beings? And we see throughout history, there tends to be a couple of ways. You know, people, one is that are people worthy or are they unworthy? Is a, a public issue, is, it, is an issue a public issue or is it a private trouble? 
right? Is there some personal, personal pathology that leads to people being poor? Or is it more structural, right, a public, issue, a public problem? And so I talk about it every day in my classes about this because it really underlies all the policy and really our day-to-day -day views of poverty, whether or not you're going to give to uh, homeless students or not. Is, are they deserving or undeserving? Right, and that's run through our history of poverty. We're always there's this tension that's there all the time. We're making these determinations, and that shows up in our policy that we have so the, today. The in the value judgments vary based on a person's own upbringing and own mm -hmm. worldview of how they're interpreting why someone is poor and why someone is not. Exactly. But what we also know, and I love the segue to public policy, mm -hmm. what we also know is that one size does not fit all with public policy. Mm -hmm. Again, go state by state, area by area. Mm -hmm. We also know the sibling birth order is, mm -hmm. is a factor in the, mm -hmm. in the family dynamic. We see cases in the Appalachian part of Ohio where very poor schools mm -hmm. are enrolling kids in college at a high rate. We mm -hmm. see uh, cities and other areas where schools are enrolling kids at a very low rate. Mm -hmm. So it comes down to interventions and the, and the dynamic between the family, the community, the higher education uh, structure, mm -hmm. and the K through 12 structure. So what fits in Washington, D.C. doesn't fit in Kentucky, mm -hmm. may not fit in North mm -hmm. Carolina. So then we're down to state legislators and the wisdom of state legislatures and who is doing what and where are the resources coming from. So again, poverty being relative, we can't look at this as a one-size-fits-all problem, and we have to start addressing this community by community. And who isn't a stakeholder? Everyone's a stakeholder. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we're all sort of coming out of our own context, right? So you know, your context was the Kentucky upbringing that you had. I grew up in Florida mm -hmm. in a middle-class household, but I did play ball and go to school with people who wore the same clothes day after day. And mm -hmm. if we had a team meal, they would be taking everyone's leftovers. It, it, it doesn't always occur to you immediately that that might be their next meal. You just think that they might be hungry. And you grew up in Georgia. I grew up in Georgia, yeah. And I grew up impoverished. I lived in public housing in Georgia. And um, yeah, I had the government cheese and we had we, we called, called it reagan cheese reagan cheese it was the <laughs> oh yeah and we had uh, we had food stamps then they were actually stamps and uh so i grew up with that so i know what that's like most of most of what was coming down for us came from the federal level at that point in time and so i felt really constrained by federal policies at times because it was the reagan era i mean reagan there was a lot of cutbacks during that time that we were growing up uh, by that administration, uh, like public housing, he cut it from 90 billion to 19 billion in 1983. So huge cuts and I felt it because that was my day-to-day -day life. And then I went off to college and I was basically on my own in college. I was able to get scholarships. And, but I know it was before McKinney-Vento, there were no, we spent some time homeless. Uh, there was no, none of that. Mm. And, and then I went off to college uh, with that. And then again, there weren't no, it was the invisibility of it, right? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes poverty is invisible. Ralph Ellison said, you know, um, uh, he said that I'm invisible uh, simply because people refuse to see me, yeah. right? And so that's what I've seen with, with poverty is that I was refused to, I've been refused to be seen and then I see the students I work with today the same thing. And even around here, right, you can drive around with rural poverty, I know we'll get to it in a minute, but it is, you know, there's, a, there's this mixture in, in urban poverty, you can kind of go down certain streets or blocks and there's this concentration and we don't see that as much in rural poverty. So there's this invisibility. And it creates an isolation for people living in that moment of poverty to yeah. where they feel disempowered to have conversations publicly mm -hmm. um, out mm -hmm. of a sense of embarrassment or humiliation or nobody wants to hear my story. Well, right. and thankfully, uh, a, a child living in an urban context mm -hmm. 
typically is able within a few blocks to access resources. Right. What does a kid 15 miles away from anything in a trailer park do? Right. And the minute that that teenager takes his or her first drug, mm -hmm. or the minute that the teenager becomes pregnant, mm -hmm. statistically, it's game over. Yeah. And we just know that it's hand-wringing and upsetting to say it, but statistically, it's a fact. Well, let's pull that apart a yeah. little bit. What are the unique challenges? You mentioned geography for mm -hmm. the rural poor, and that mm -hmm. makes access to, uh, to uh, medical treatment and medical care and mm -hmm. all those sorts of things more challenging. Right. What, what other facets yeah. of rural poverty make it particularly challenging? Yeah. Well, uh, we, we also know, as mentioned uh, earlier, in the digital age, access... Mm -hmm. Uh, and resources to pay the ever-increasing cable bills and the access is an mm -hmm. issue. Right. Mobile phone access right. and it, it is an issue or keeping them on, uh, you mm -hmm. know, and uh, being able to pay for that. But isolationism just in and of itself has a psychological effect. Mm -hmm. it, it really, uh, and, I, and I've experienced this myself, when you feel cut off from other things, other people, or when you're in the, you have to understand, when you're in the same circle of people and you're, I'm going to use my 15-mile <laughs> location mm -hmm. again, when you're poor but everyone else around you is poor, it's okay to be poor. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's almost something that you accept. You don't necessarily embrace it, but you just almost accept it. And you begin to function within that structure. Mm -hmm. We talked to families when I was a doctoral researcher, and they couldn't tell me anything about a FAFSA or a college application. But that mother would know when and what day and what time to be at the food pantry or to get the uh, utility company assistance. And I'm not criticizing that. Mm -hmm. I'm just literally mm -hmm. saying they, would, they learn how to function within that right. context. And then what happens just one extra layer, we would talk to families, and literally uh, I had a mother and a father say to me at one point, well, what's wrong with the way we live? Or, you know, what's wrong with where we're from? And I think the, and I was worried that it was almost taking as being judgmental to mm -hmm. them, but what they were saying is, yeah, we want our children to be successful, but on the other hand, are you saying something is wrong with the way we've raised our kids? Mm -hmm. So there is a generational psychological dynamic to this too. It mm -hmm. just, you, you begin to accept that that's who you are, where you're from. And also uh, with poverty comes poor health and poor health indicators. Right. So we have 20 year olds taking care of 40 year old parents and we have 40 year old parents burying 60 year old parents mm -hmm. with tobacco usage and drug usage. So the, the, we, we're getting into the layers uh, pretty quickly, but mm -hmm. that's what's unique about rural poverty, particularly mm -hmm. it's literally isolationism, which mm -hmm. has a, it's multi-factorial. Uh, and so you want services, you need support, mm -hmm. but you may be in a situation where you call and you say, how do I do this? And someone says, well, go to this webpage, fill out this form, and then you know, someone will contact you in seven days. Mm -hmm. Well, your phone, you know, the, the web page may not fit your phone, mm -hmm. and you may not have access. You certainly may not have a computer, or you have a computer, but you don't have access to broadband. Mm -hmm. And so getting the answer to your problems or getting starting down the journey to the answer to your problems becomes virtually impossible. And you may be functionally illiterate. Right, exactly. And then even if they tell you there's a place to go to, so you don't even have to use the internet, right? Then just getting to a place can right. be very problematic because you are 15 miles away from everything. And so transportation isn't there. There's no bus service in, in rural America for the most part. And so then you rely on the patchwork of social service agencies to try to help you get from place to place. And it is very fragmented, you know, whether it be the nonprofit agencies or 
for the for-profit agencies or the federal government or the state government. It's very fragmented. And then to Brian's point, when you get uh, trapped in this cycle of desperation, you know, self-care mm -hmm. sometimes becomes making a bad decision, which um, ameliorates the conditions for a few moments but doesn't help solve your problem, and then you essentially ex have expanded your problems. Yeah, and also when you're talking about people who are impoverished or they're urban or rural with, with substance use, I mean, many people use substances in, throughout the socioeconomic strata, right? Uh, but the but the penalty if you are impoverished is much higher. The impact. And the impact is much higher, right? Mm -hmm. So a wealthy person can use cocaine recreationally or what have you, and uh, but they have the means, they have, they, they have access to health care when things go south. And when you're very impoverished, you don't have that access. It's more it's, deterministic and fatalistic for right. those people. And mm -hmm. it can roll right back into economics and public policy. So mm -hmm. um, the county or the state that you're living in uh, wants to raise some more money. Mm -hmm. So they make a decision to throw uh, some additional sales tax on mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. Well, if we're all putting paying sales tax on milk, the person like me who's working at a university, it's a few extra pennies, I'm fine. But over the course of a year, the totality of those use taxes or sales taxes becomes exorbitantly punitive right. to people who have very little extra dollars to invest in a gallon of milk that now has become, become right. more well, expensive. And speaking mm -hmm. of the margins, if you have a furnace that goes out or you have a refrigerator mm -hmm. that, that dies, working at a university, you can absorb right. that cost. When someone in rural America who's living dollar to dollar, perhaps paycheck or subsidy to subsidy, an event like that mm -hmm. triggers uh, mm -hmm. a series of subsequent events that is very hard to recover from. It is. It, just, they just, rural poor live on the margins so very tightly. Yeah. And it, it's equally true that while we're also a nation of immigrants where just about everybody is from originally somewhere else and mm -hmm. came here to sort of stitch together into this, this quilt that has become America, we're all also equally sharing the characteristic of being poor. You know, mm -hmm. if we go back far enough, right, whether mm -hmm. it was coal miner, whether it was a sharecropper, mm -hmm. whether it was a slave, whether it was someone who's dispossessed of their property, we all share that in common. But to the point that you made earlier about isolation, you know, after a generation or two, some of that seems to be stripped out of our DNA and we act like, well, we've never had that situation when in fact pull up a census record, you go back a generation or two and mm -hmm. we all have been or come from poor stock, mm -hmm. as it were. Yeah, but there are opportunities historically, especially for white people, that have kind of helped us sure. give a leg up, right? I mean, the Great Depression, a lot of the programs to ameliorate you know, the poverty, they went to white people, right? The, the Southern blacks weren't really allowed those because the, the white Democrats said, we're not gonna allow your, you know, your, great, your programs to come in here if you if you also include African Americans. And then after World War II, of course, there were the, the GI grant that you know program that mostly benefited white men. And so so there were this ability to kind of pull yourself up mm. a bit, right? By, by those opportunities where lots of people of color, especially, they weren't given that ability. And women, you know, um, weren't so, so it's much. fair to say historically, in the way that America's society has functioned from a power perspective, mm -hmm. has also been applied 
across the board to the way that we have addressed poor people. Mm -hmm. So at a time period where men were disproportionately more likely to receive benefits and white men, and eventually over the past 20 or 30 years, those conditions have improved for mm -hmm. people of color and for women? Yeah, but we're still not closing the gap, right? I mean, for women, if you look at the gender pay gap, for white women, it's what, 80 cents to every dollar that a white male makes. And for women of color, it's anywhere from 60 to 65 cents. So we're, we're, we're making inches, you know, towards, uh, you know, some sort of equality, but we still have a long way to go, especially for people of color. This is Chancellor Robin Cummings, and I want to thank you for listening to 30 Brave Minutes. Our faculty and students provide expertise, energy, and passion driving our region forward. Our commitment to Southeastern North Carolina has never been stronger through our teaching, our research, and our community outreach. I want to encourage you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. With your help, we will continue our impact for generations to come. You can donate online at uncp.edu give. Thanks again for listening. Now back to more 30 Brave Minutes. We've painted a, a relatively bleak picture so far. Let's uh, throw a ray of sunshine in here. What are some things that work within all of this absolutely multivalent problem where there's all these things coming together and it's hard to pull them out? There are some success strategies, right? Mm -hmm. There are. And, you know, rural life has some nice aspects too, like Sunday school and Bible school and lemonade and beautiful days at the park and the rural life can be... Um, safer statistically. It's easier to hang a tree stand in the countryside <laughs> than it is in the city. Yeah, th there certainly are benefits. I'm very proud of where I come from, and I'm, mm -hmm. and I'm glad that, that I did. But having said that, um, we know and we were able to find in, in research uh, that I was privileged to be a part of at Bellarmine University from Kentucky is that when we focus in a particular county mm -hmm. on employment statistics, when we, when we control for employment and, and we're able to isolate a couple of covariates, we actually were seeing an increase in two- and four-year college enrollment. And two-year enrollment means heightened de uh, you know, diesel mechanics, uh, mm -hmm. plumbers, carpenters, electricians, mm -hmm. because under the Obama administration, a lot of those trade skills were moved to the two-year college. So I think the two-year college and a trade has a definite place in this context across our country. Uh, having said that, we also saw an increase in four-year college enrollment. So we know if we can increase two and four year college enrollment, uh, that's less crime and more taxes paid, mm -hmm. you know, in these contexts. So, right. so we have, we know, again, I'll, I'll stay with the point that one size doesn't fit all, but we know county, even county to county, mm -hmm. we know what the answers are in, in many cases. We need the strength and the will and the and legislators and policymakers coming together to address, recognize and address the problem. And sometimes those answers are governmental, sometimes they're faith-based, sometimes they're nonprofit, mm -hmm. sometimes they're it's familial. All of that. It's all of that. Right. Yeah. How do you know when to deploy which of these sorts of uh, agency-based approaches uh, yeah. to solve a county-by-county county problem? Well, I think in the work that I've done, community-engaged work is, is really, I've seen lots of positive drives, you know, 
from that. But I think it's because we got the community together, the faith-based community as well as the nonprofits, working with people in their, their geographical area doing what they would like to do. Um, for instance, I was a part of a program in South Carolina, rural South Carolina, where we were trying to address this idea of obesity, hypertension, uh, diabetes, and there were the local farmers, we were able to work with them to come up with a farmer's market, and we also worked with the local health providers to write prescriptions to their patients to go to the, to the farmer's market. And so it was just, you know, the, so everyone was buying into this, and it was wonderful because what we saw, people who would never come to farmers markets to get fresh produce for a, a really low price were starting to come. And it was because, this, and it was a large geographical area, so we had to work with many of the healthcare providers. But they, they thought, this is, you know, low cost for me. All I have to do is write this prescription to go to the farmers market, and the farmers were really excited to have a farmers market because not only were the people coming that the, the prescriptions were written for, but the local people were coming. Mm. But it took about six to eight months of really talking to the community and saying, what is it you would like to have happen and how we would like to increase you know, health outcomes or make them better, and that's what they came up with. I would never have come up with that. You know, well, it was a fascinating idea, but it just came from community engagement. Well, and, and I think it's appropriate that you mentioned you know, in these counties where we experienced in our area here in North Carolina with food deserts mm -hmm. that helps mm -hmm. address food deserts, but that's also educational for, mm -hmm. for, the, for the populace. Right. But, you know, when you're in it, Walmart and McDonald's have figured it out. They figured it out mm -hmm. that a family living below the federal poverty line can come in and ride that dollar menu. And I'm not being critical of Walmart and McDonald's. I'm just saying mm -hmm. you can go in very cheaply and buy a lot of processed food and a lot of fast food that's hot and feed your children, especially if times right. are very tight. So continued education with farmers markets and about nutrition mm -hmm. and uh, you know tobacco, uh, you mm -hmm. know the abatement and usage mm -hmm. of tobacco is very crucial right. because that affects obesity and health rates and all of those things, mm -hmm. which just exacerbates the entire you know picture. I really mm -hmm. loved your example because it, it it originated out of a local area, mm -hmm. right? So there's an mm -hmm. old expression that says, "I'm from Washington D.C. or I'm from Raleigh mm -hmm. and I'm here to help you," and right. people go running from mm -hmm. you. Sure. But when local people mm -hmm produce an alternative that helps the local farmers, that helps create healthier food options, but also creates an opportunity for community. Mm -hmm. People don't just come to the farmer's market to get a zucchini or a cucumber. Right. They come to have conversation. Mm -hmm. And so they find this sense of community, and it's good for you know, all elements of the soul. Exactly. Um, yeah. and we also found a, a story. It was in... Um, I'd studied a lot of Appalachia, which bleeds mm -hmm. into Ohio. A lot mm -hmm. of people don't really realize mm -hmm. that. But in Ohio, uh, there was actually a story. It was a white bread story mm -hmm. where they were talking about white and wheat bread, and they were trying to get yeah. people to eat wheat bread, mm -hmm. and they wanted they preferred white bread. Yeah. But we saw a particular story at a school, and they utilized goal setting. And what they did was they took the kids starting in the first grade mm -hmm. with the parents leading up to the time of high school graduation, and they set specific goals, academic, life, social skill goals. They taught people to look one another in the eye mm -hmm. when you mm -hmm. talk, to shake hands appropriately, mm -hmm. firmly, to dress appropriately and professionally. You don't have to be wealthy to dress and, and take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. So they taught these life skills as well as setting academic goals that were attainable. And and the, the enrollment rate in college, the the high school graduation rate or leading to a trade was phenomenal. So we know interventions work. Mm -hmm. It takes intentionality, and it just takes enough people to care. Mm -hmm.
what's next? What would you like researchers to study next? What, where are you heading in terms of another direction of getting deeper and deeper into both understanding the conditions and identifying some solutions? Well, I, I think next I, I've been you know, interested in the policies that are out there, especially at the federal level, and how we can change those in a way that would really um, help our, you know, the impoverished communities. Uh, you know, the earned tax uh, income, right? Income tax, when you, you get some money back from that, that would be great if we extended that to people that didn't have children that were impoverished. Right now, the earned tax uh, income, it, it's only for kids who have, people who have children. That would be a nice way to um, sort of help people that are impoverished. I think also looking at the criminalization of poverty uh, is really important. Right now, since I work with people that are homeless, uh, there are lots of, of townships and communities that arrest people that are homeless because they're in encampments in public spaces. When I used to work for a homeless shelter, they would actually, we called it Greyhound Therapy, they would put the, the counties like Wilmington, North Carolina, would actually arrest the homeless people and give them a one-way bus ticket mm. to Charlotte and say either you leave or there'll be other consequences. So they would come to us, we'd actually go to the bus station because we knew that, you know, people That's would be coming. That's where you would find people. That's where you'd find people. Yeah, yeah it, was, it, was, it was a place to find people. So I think having community efforts where they're helping people that are have encampments and even in rural areas, people are, encamp are have encampments. Um, so it's not just in urban areas that that happens. And I think working with police uh, and public policy so that we're not criminalizing it, we're not arresting people because they are homeless. That just that doesn't do anything except get people out of your way for a moment. Uh, but it doesn't do anything to help with poverty. Um, I think the you know the prison, the school to prison pipeline. Lots of those kids are impoverished. Lots of those kids are uh, uh, kids of color. And um, I think we need to take a hard look at that and change public policy for that. Um, because prison, once we know the outcomes, once you go to prison, your outcomes are pretty dire after that. So, Well, I agree with a lot of what my colleague and friend has said. I, I don't believe the federal government, with all due respect to President Johnson, leading back to the 60s to the present day, that, that the federal government is going to solve poverty in the sense that it's, a, it's it, oh, we can check the box, it's solved. Um, it is very, very much a community issue. That having been said, the federal government and the best thing that taxpayers can do is provide funding mm -hmm. for intelligent programs that we know work mm -hmm. and that we can reproduce uh, in different contexts. Having said that, as for me, what I'd like to spend the rest of my career and life continuing to, to study is that poverty is structural. It has a very structural nature. Your zip code is deterministic. Your geogra you know, the geography where you're from is deterministic. Um, genetically, um, there, there are things that are predetermined. So um, I, for my, I myself, feel like in some measure, coming from a small town, I'm, I was able, not, I don't want to say escape, but education was, was the catalyst for me, mm -hmm. as I think it is for so many people. So I think investments in education, investments in goal setting, which doesn't take anything other than just effort and intentionality and focus. Mm -hmm. Mentoring is a big part of this too. But you have to have the church, um, the community organizations, entities like the United Way, there have to be community, communities have to come together because it, just every 1% we move the needle, we save thousands of lives. We improve mm -hmm. thousands of lives and then that repeats to other people. But poverty is structural. It's, it's just inherent, it's the way it is. But what we can do is we can, we can provide mechanisms to significantly move the needle. So the answer might not be a prescription, 
one thing designed mm -hmm. to fix one problem. It's a multivitamin. You need mm -hmm. something that can address a bunch of different things at one time. It is indeed. Um, lightning round here. Mm -hmm. so our time is, uh, is uh, dwindling, so a couple of things. Tell me one thing you wish people didn't think about poverty. What's, a, what's one of the biggest myths or the biggest balloons you'd like to burst as it comes to the study of poverty? Uh, people who are poor are not always lazy. People who are poor didn't choose it. People who are poor, they're not poor because they can't hold down a job. Uh, I think there are a lot of misconceptions from a lot of people in different parts of the country that if you're from this area, you're poor and you choose to be poor. And they mm -hmm. also have to realize if people say, well, if you're in a depressed area, well, why don't you just move? Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes that isn't so easy mm -hmm. when you have a family dynamic and it's hard to function if that's all that you know. So I just, I, the number one thing that, that really I find almost offensive mm -hmm. is that if you're poor, you must just be lazy and a mm -hmm. deadbeat because mm -hmm. that is not true. Poverty is not a choice. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you, Brian. I think that uh, that's what I hear a lot, and with especially if I teach an introduction class and I get students that aren't in the social work program, um, because once they're in it for a while, we tell them all this. But yeah, that, that they're lazy, that that they're to blame for their situation, and if they would just get smarter and move. And of course, we know that moving takes a lot of money mm -hmm. to move. There's lots of stigma attached with poverty, um, and this idea that people are worthy or unworthy. I always say everyone is worthy, everyone is deserving, right? And, um, and it's not a choice. I mean, we're often, we're born in it, and unfortunately many people, they die in poverty, and they try really hard, and they work many jobs, so it's not, you can't just pull yourself out of it or work yourself out of it sometimes. So give us a reason to be helpful. Well, the first thing I would say is, um, you know, the, the better the economy, the, the, the poverty statistics improve, okay? And I think there's also reason to be hopeful that the manufacturing base in this country is not completely gone. Regardless of your politics, we are seeing a slight resurgence, uh, in an absolute resurgence in some areas, but a slight uptick in manufacturing. We need the manufacturing base to come back to help rural America. Uh, there in, in my hometown of Brandenburg, Kentucky, which has suffered for a number of years, there's a $1.2 billion investment being made in a steel plant, and it's thousands of jobs. So we see pockets of this. And so that, that's something to be hopeful about, regardless of politics, number one. Number two, I would also say, I, I have found that while there are stigmas with poverty, there are misconceptions about poverty, the understanding of the function of poverty is increasing. So I think the scholarly community is getting the word out there. I do, I, mm -hmm. I, I really believe that. Because people like Bill Gates and his uh, foundation, mm -hmm. uh, people like uh, the Jack Kent Cook Foundation out of DC, entities, uh, Mr. Buffett, uh, Warren Buffett, they're actually saying to people, listen, look, you know, poverty, I think you misunderstand what causes poverty. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing the truly, uh, the, the truly wealthy and not a self-made wealth in this country that recognizes the problem and is making an investments in cleaner water, uh, ameliorating food deserts, improving the plight of people, mm -hmm. which we know disproportionately are rural. Let's be clear, the majority of poor people in the United States of America live in the rural areas. Mm -hmm. But, but I, that gives me hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, I'm seeing uh, more at a policy level. I think about the fact that, you know, there was Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, and I didn't think I would see that in my lifetime. And so I think that we're inching towards 
that. You know, good universal health care for all, of course, would go people that are impoverished, that would help them so much with their health outcomes because we see that their lifespans are uh, cut so very short because of health problems. So I see a positive there. I think we're going, we will be going in the, we're kind of, we, we kind of we stutter, we take a couple steps forward and three steps back, but I think eventually in my lifetime I hope to see that, and I didn't think that 10 years ago, so that's nice. I think that policy-wise we have a, we have a long way to go. I hope that uh, there will be some policies that are not so regressive. That's in the last few years, that's what we've seen, a lot of more regressive policies, um, but I have hope because people, I think, are getting the word out about poverty and people are understanding more. I think the media has shown it a bit more in the last 10 years or so. I know that people, at least my friends who are social activists, they're, they're getting the word out and we're bringing in more and more social activists around these different issues like the criminalization of poverty and, and homelessness. And I think that's, that's still growing and that gives me hope. So. And, I, and I just wanted to say too, as to technology, which I think mm -hmm. is a great point, People, some impoverished people have trouble with access to technology, but it's undeniable that our world and our country is more connected than ever before. So the flow of information happens a lot quickly. So I think that's what's increasing awareness mm -hmm. about certain things. And when you see uh, something tragic happen or a family can't afford to, to, who's lost a loved one, GoFundMe and just people being able through technological means mm -hmm. to help people. I think that's a positive. I think we're probably losing some humanity <laughs> with our technology sometimes too, but there is an upside. That connectivity does make people who previously felt locked out maybe mm -hmm. not feel quite as locked out. And, there, and that's a topic for another uh, edition <laughs> that we'll work on later. Dr. Yeah. Savage, Dr. Robinson, thank you for thank your you. time and your passion, you, your Dr. expertise. Thank uh, you. A really great discussion. Mm -hmm. And thank all of our listeners on 30 Brave Minutes. Join us again next time. Today's podcast was edited by Richard Gay and transcribed by Janet Gentis. Theme music created by Riley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and go Braves! Good job, everybody!